0: Thank you, Chris, for bringing us our reading this morning of god 's Word. So the first Sunday of a new year this should be an exciting time shouldn 't it I like New Year. I like the sense of anticipation of what's to come. I like the excitement of new opportunities, new challenges, and as a church, we uh, we embrace that sense. We normally, at the beginning of each new year, we have a new theme for the year, which we've got of uh, changing times, unchanging God. And to go with that, we normally would have a new verse for the year. And as we think about the theme and the verse for the year, we'll perhaps study new parts of the Bible. That we haven't looked at recently, and as we do so, we look forward as a church to new challenges, new opportunities, new ways to serve God in our lives, new ways to honour him, better honour him in our lives. It's a time to reflect on what's gone by in the previous year, all the good things that have happened that we can give thanks to God for, and despite the strange times in which we live, there are a lot of good things that we can give thanks to God for Perhaps it's also a time at New Year to think about the things that haven't gone quite so well and take the opportunity to draw a line under them and move forward. But I think you would all agree with Ian's sentiments regarding this New Year that this New Year feels very different, doesn't it? That sense of excitement and looking forward is being perhaps somewhat uh, dampened by the events that have been going on around the world throughout the last year. I guess the word that sums up most people's feelings this new year as we put 2020 to bed and look forward to 2021 is fatigue. I'm so tired of this. We've been doing this for ten nine, ten months now. I'm fed up with all of this COVID stuff. Stop the ride, I want to get off. Except there is no stopping the ride, there is no getting off. And the reality is, we're going to be having this situation for probably many, many months to come. And so, I guess it's no surprise that our theme for the year reflects something of the struggles we're going through right now of changing times and having an unchanging God. Because he does not change, he is utterly trustworthy. And so we can say, along with the prophet Isaiah, those who hope in the Lord will find their strength. Renewed. You know, those words that God spoke to his people through the prophet Isaiah came at a time when God's people were finding their whole lives were changed up, turned upside down. They were about to be taken into exile, into captivity, into Babylon, into a foreign land hundreds of miles away. Everything they knew, everything about their lives that was familiar was about to be turned upside down. And into the midst of that turmoil, God has a single message for his people. Trust in me. Trust in me. As you'll have seen from the beginning of our broadcast this morning, we're starting a new series this week, and we're looking at the early chapters of the book of Revelation, what's sometimes called the Letters to the Seven Churches. And as we do so, we are going to be looking at a book that was written to God's people also at a time of turmoil and a time of change. The early church had known persecution ever since the very first people were converted at the beginning of um, Acts in chapters 2 and 3. And the story of, of the book of Acts really is one of God's people facing hardship and persecution and how they dealt with that. But now we find decades later, in the book of Revelation, God's people in a time of crisis and change and turmoil. These Christians, these strange new religious sects that worshipped this carpenter's son from Nazareth, had come up on the radar of the emperor Domitian, Just to help you to understand what John was writing into here, the official religion of Rome at the time was emperor worship. The emperor was God, and he was to be worshipped. Albeit alongside whatever gods you might choose to worship, you had to pay homage to and worship the emperor. Alternative foreign religions, especially religions like this new so called Christianity that forbade the worship of anyone else, were seen as at best a nuisance. At worst, they were mercilessly hounded, arrested, and sometimes executed. put this alongside famine, persecution from local Jewish populations, pressure from local trade guilds, and many other particular problems that were particular to individual churches that John was writing to. And we find the early church that John writes to was not just troubled, but it was weak, It was insignificant, it was bullied, it was blamed. Remember the Emperor Nero loved to blame the Christians for the fire that had destroyed a large part of Rome. It was in grave danger of disappearing altogether. And I guess the Christians who made up the individual congregations in those churches must have wondered what on the earth had possessed them to give up so much to follow this one who was going to cause them so much trouble. And in the midst of all of this, the aged Apostle John. Remember, the Apostle John, probably at that time, was the only one who had remaining who had witnessed and known the life of the Lord Jesus. The aged Apostle John has a vision. In fact, he has a series of visions. And we're going to be looking over the next few weeks at the first vision that comes to us in a form of a series of letters. But these visions that John had were not intended to provide all the answers to the questions the church might have had. They weren't intended to provide a timeline telling them just how much longer they were going to have to put up with their present trouble and persecution and turmoil. And wouldn't we love a timeline for the end of our troubles just now? But this was to be intended to be a source of comfort and a source of nourishment. To his readers, intended to help them understand the times they were living in, intended to help them understand the people they were living alongside, the people they were trying to reach out and help, and who more often than not were the source of the trouble and the strife that they were living under. The book of Revelation, I think, is truly a pastoral letter. It's a letter from the heart of the apostle who wrote, if you remember, in the first epistle of John, to his dear little children. Not in a patronizing sense, not out of a need to chastise them for their impatience and lack of faith in the circumstances they're living in, but from a loving heart of compassion from someone who had concern for those he had discipled. And so, as we said, the first part of this vision comes in the form of a series of letters. Seven churches, seven letters. Sounds like the start of a riddle, doesn't it? And yet, the way John writes, it's clear that he intended all of the letters to be read by all of the churches, and indeed the wider church, and indeed us today. Why? Why? Because what God had to say to his people 2,000 years ago and in a different part of the world is still as relevant and is still sharp as a two-edged sword. Today we had read to us by Chris, thank you Chris, the first few verses of Revelation chapter 1. And as we unpack these verses, we're going to be looking at the sender of these letters. Next week, we're going to look at the um, picture of Jesus that John received. And then in the weeks after that, we're going to be looking at the individual letters to the individual churches. But today, as we look at these opening verses of the book of Revelation, we find that John introduces us to God, the author and the source of this revelation, and to the Lord Jesus. Who is the subject of them? And as we look at these, we're going to be asking the question, can we trust this sender? You know, I'm sure that many of you on a regular basis will open your email inbox in the morning and you'll find several emails and you look at them and you think, oh, that looks a bit strange. That looks a bit dodgy. Um, Not sure about that link in the body of the text. Not sure about that attachment they want me to open. And I don't quite recognize the email address of the sender. Maybe it looks like someone who emails you on a regular basis, but it's got a few extra uh, funny little symbols. And you think, no, that's uh, that's not good. Well, I'm pretty sure John's readers wouldn't have understood much about 21st century communications but I think they would have understood the principle of receiving a message and asking, who is this message from? Can I trust them? And what is their purpose in writing to me? John had an awful lot to say to the seven churches, and indeed to us. But before he gets into saying any of it, he wants us to understand just who this message is from, And what his purpose is in sending us this message. So, first of all, who is this sender? Well, John says, first of all, he is the one who wants to communicate with us personally and directly. The opening couple of verses of the book of Revelation give us a very clear line of communication as to how this message gets to us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is Jesus, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it. It comes from God. Through Jesus, to an angel, to John, to his readers, the early church, and to those who the early church read it to. And that includes us as well. God's desire has always been to speak directly into the hearts of, in lives of his people. He wants, he loves to reveal things to us. What God is saying here is not human wisdom. This is not something for philosophical or even, I would suggest, theological discussion. This is truth revealed from God to his people. Particularly for John's readers, this was not something that John had dreamt up and written down. This was not even something that an angel had dreamt up or even the Lord Jesus himself. Why is that important? Well, this is writing in the apocalyptic genre or the apocalyptic tradition. It's not really a genre that we have as a body of literature nowadays, but to John's readers, they would have understood, ah, yes, this is apocalyptic writing. We know about this. We know how to understand this and how to read it. Apocalyptic writers, however, very often borrowed a name from somebody else, what we would call nowadays a nom de plume, a pen name. They would perhaps borrow the identity of a long-dead Old Testament hero or maybe a mythical person or um, an angelic being, and they would write in that name, perhaps to give what they're saying some sort of added authority or gravitas. John makes it clear that although this is writing in the apocalyptic tradition, this is very different. These are words that come directly to God's people from the throne of God. Secondly, John would have us know that this is from the one who is eternal. Grace and peace to you, says John, from him who is and who was and who is to come. He is not limited by time and he is not limited by time. The events of time. In a time of terrible political turmoil, John starts off from the point of view of an eternal God who is unchanging. John here paraphrases the name which God gave himself in Exodus chapter 3. Remember the story of Moses at the burning bush? And Moses watches the burning bush and it's not being consumed, and he hears a voice, and God tells him from the burning bush, Go and speak to Pharaoh. Go and speak to my people. And Moses asked God a question Who shall I say has sent me? And God says to Moses, Say, I am who I am. This is what you would say to the Israelites I am has sent me. I am was the name that God gave Himself on that occasion. It is a name which is not limited to the past or present or future tense, but it is a name which encompasses all of those tenses. I am has sent me to you. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation Two generation. In the midst of the Israelites' hardship and strife in slavery, God reminds them he is the unchanging God. The God who was in the business of dealing with and acting on behalf of their ancestors had not changed. He was still in the business of dealing with and acting on behalf of his people. And more than that, he is in the business of hearing what his children cry out to him because he says, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. In just the same way, John can say that the same God who was in the business of looking after and hearing the suffering of his people all those thousands of years ago has not changed That same God is the same God who looks down on his people's suffering and persecution. He hears their cries and he is concerned about their suffering. We're going to sing a couple of songs again now. And then after we've done that, we're going to be looking not so much at who is sending the message, but what is God's purpose in writing this message to John and to the seven churches, and indeed to us here in 21st century Dorchester. You've got mail. Do you trust this sender? You know, I was thinking, as we were singing the song, I I talked about receiving emails. It's quite unusual to get a letter through the front door nowadays, isn't it? Um, But, you know, there are certain envelopes that always attract your attention, aren't there? Generally, anything from your credit card company or your bank or perhaps with those fatal letters HMRC on, and you tend to be ripping it open thinking, why are they writing to me? What do they want this time? Well, John's readers, I guess, would have been asking the same question. We know who's writing to us. It's the one who is eternal. uh, And it's the one who wants to speak to us directly. What is he writing to us for? What is the purpose of this message? Well, the first thing I think we see is that it is to bring blessing and grace and peace. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, John says. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. And then he goes on to say, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, who is to come. In other words, this is to be a message above all other things of comfort and Encouragement. But that comes with a qualification, doesn't it? If we are to partake in the blessing from this letter, it must be read to us. I did say to Chris before, I said, if you read these words to the church, you will be blessed because of that. We were blessed because we hear, heard them. It's not just enough, though, to read the words of this revelation and to hear them. But John says, you must take it to heart. In other words, What we read here must make a difference to our everyday lives. In other words, we must act on what God tells us. I sometimes think we're very good at hearing what God tells us and leaving it there. Sometimes we're even very good at taking it to heart and leaving it there. But this book must make a difference to the way we behave if it is to be a source of blessing and encouragement to us. I would even tentatively suggest this is a book which should spur us into action and not discussion. Secondly, John wants to remind us of what God, through the Lord Jesus, has already done for us. You know, often... When we look at scripture, we want to see what God is going to do for us in the future. But we forget that the prime uh, aspect of scripture is to remind us of what Jesus has already done for us. John introduces us here to God in what's probably one of the most explicit examples of Trinitarian teaching in the New Testament. He introduces us to the one who was, who is, who is to come, the Father. And then in his own John-like style, he introduces us to the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne, the one who comes from God and is at work amongst the churches. And then he introduces us to the person of the Lord Jesus, How does he do that? Well, I think he does it by making it clear that this Lord Jesus, the one that they had given everything up to follow, is the one who could fulfill Old Testament scripture. In particular, he does it by making clear that he fulfills three important Old Testament roles, that of the prophet, that of the priest, and that of the king, because he says Jesus Christ is the one who is the faithful witness. He is the prophet. He came to tell people that there was a better way, there was good news from God, that there was going to be a new and a different way of doing things. There was good news, but he was also The priest, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the high priest who came to offer the ultimate sacrifice, to bring to end all the Old Testament sacrifices, and to offer himself as the sacrifice. Only he could make possible the good news he came to bear witness to. But of course he didn't stay sacrificed, because on the third day we read, he rose again victorious over death, the firstborn from the dead. And, of course, who is the second and the third and the fourth, etc., etc.? It's us, because just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we can be raised from the death of all the things we've got wrong, all the mistakes we've made. But it's only possible because Jesus has sacrificed himself. And because of all that, of course, he is king of kings and lord of lords, the ruler of of all the earth. You know, those words would have been so important to John's readers because it seemed like their lives were out of control. The mighty Roman Empire seemed to dominate and control every aspect of our life, of their lives, just as our lives seem to be controlled by aspects and events which are seemingly out of control. So John's readers would have said, is it really possible that this one is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? But John says more than all that. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus came, John says, because God ordained that he should come. And Jesus is ultimately obedient to his father's will. But you know, John says he came because he loved us. He came because he loved us. And because he loved us, he wanted to set us free from all the things that we have got wrong. But John says even more than that. As amazing as that is, he does it all for a purpose. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. This may well have seemed like fanciful stuff to John's readers. Their lives probably revolved around trying to survive the evil machinations of the Roman Empire. But the reality is God's rescue plan in place for his people is more than just a rescue plan. He rescues us in order to release us to serve him. Next we see John wants to give his readers hope for the future. And indeed us, hope for the future. Look, he is coming, John says in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come. John now points his readers away from the trouble and the persecution and the turmoil of their present life into some unspecified point in the future, away from poverty, away from subjugation, towards a time when the whole world, John says, will see the one that this ragtag bunch of people that they called Christians gave everything up for the carpenter's son from Nazareth, that the Romans roundly humiliated on a cross of execution will come triumphant in the clouds of heaven and every eye will see him. And John says, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. What's that all about then? Well, part of that is unpacking the way that John writes things. When John says the peoples on earth, or all the peoples on earth, he is talking about the people on earth compared to the people of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's talking about people that don't yet believe on the Lord Jesus. And the peoples on earth, in other words, those who haven't uh, believed in Jesus, will mourn because of his coming. It's all a bit severe, isn't it? Well, I don't think this is intended to be a statement of coming revenge, that those who looked down on, humiliated and caused trouble to the early church were finally going to get their comeuppance. But this is rather an alternative or rather God's way of looking at reality. Those who followed Jesus and would find, served him would finally see him as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is, who was, who is to come. Whilst those who spurned his free offering of salvation would mourn because of his coming. It's easy, easy for us to see some element of revenge of The church having the last word, as it were, especially with John's enthusiastic, so shall it be, amen. But I don't think this is necessarily the case. When the church suffers, it is because of the Lord Jesus. Let me explain that. It is because people are wholeheartedly rejecting the plans of and the purposes and the will of God. The one thing that we see throughout the book of Revelation, and indeed throughout the whole of Scripture, is that God is wholeheartedly committed to his plan for mankind. You know, we started off, didn't we, by singing about the God who was faithful. What is God faithful to? Well, God is certainly faithful to us, his people. But I think if God is faithful to any one thing, ultimately he is faithful to his plans and his purposes for creation and for mankind. And I think John here is reminding his readers that in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their trouble and their changing times and their hardship and their turmoil, The very worst thing the church can engage in is trying to seek its own vindication, trying to prove itself right, as it were. Rather, they should trust. They should wait for the day when God will vindicate his own people, his own church, on his own terms. Finally, I want us to see that John's writing is to bring into focus what I have called the juxtaposition of the Christian life. And as we close, I just want us to dip into um, the very beginning of the passage that Bruce is going to be talking about next week. And the reason is this as John moves on from introducing us to the person of God who is writing and his purposes, and he starts to address the churches he's writing to, I believe John highlights the dilemma that he seeks to address through the rest of the book of Revelation, and in particular throughout the seven letters. If you wanted a single verse summary of the book of Revelation, I think you could do a lot worse than Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that arose in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. Those of you who are observant will notice that Chris finished his reading right in the middle of a verse. As John writes to his readers, he reminds them he can identify with what they're going through. He can identify with the suffering that they are experiencing. And he says he can identify with them in three things suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. But they're things that don't quite make sense. And I think what doesn't quite make sense about them to me is the conundrum of living the Christian life. All of these three things come as a result of following Jesus. First of all, he says uh, he's a brother and companion in suffering and kingdom. Well, we know when we trust in the Lord Jesus when we become Christians we inherit a place in God's kingdom don't we and that is wonderful and it's amazing and we don't just in place uh, inherit a lowly place in God's kingdom we inherit places as sons and daughters of the king if you like as princes and princesses of the kingdom of heaven But just as we inherit a place in the kingdom, we inherit something else from the Lord Jesus, and that is suffering. In Philippians, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of the resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Peter says much the same things. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. How do we square the circle? On the one hand, when we follow Jesus, we inherit a place in the kingdom. And on the other hand, we inherit suffering Two things that seem to be diametrically opposed. How do we solve the dilemma? Well, John gives us the answer with the third thing that he inherits from the Lord Jesus. Patient endurance. Patient endurance. We shouldn't see this patient endurance as some sort of weak and powerless resignation. We've just got to accept our lot in life, but rather as a dogged determination. This is the same word that in chapter 2 is translated as perseverance. What does this patient endurance look like? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks as we unpack these various letters to the churches and we find their individual circumstances and just how they were to work out this sense of Patient endurance. But just for now, John gives us a clue as to what it looks like. Here is John, he says, on the island of Patmos, on this small, rocky outcrop, a bleak, dreary, depressing place. John was probably there because it was known as a prison island. Prisoners would be put there in order to be sent to hard labor to work in the quarries that were there. John is on the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He doesn't mince his words when he comes to explaining what he's doing on Patmos and why he's there. But he says something else. I was on the island of Patmos and I was in the spirit. On Patmos, in the spirit. This is John indulging in the thing he loves to play, to, to indulge in, and that is wordplay, because in the Greek, On Patmos and in the spirit sound almost exactly the same. He is making a, uh, if you like, a a, a counterpoint here. On the one hand, he is on Patmos, on this Greek, dreary, depressing prison island. On the other hand, he is in the spirit. I think this is more than just John being clever, though, because John wants to answer the problem that he faces along with the early church. I don't want to uh, uh, be guilty of giving the plot away before the story gets going, but I just want to explain something that we're going to see, a pattern that we're going to see throughout the coming weeks as we look at these letters to the seven churches. Each of these churches, we will find, had unique individual problems that they faced. But it seems to me each of these problems could simply disappear overnight if that church ceased to interact with the community around it. If they became sort of reclusive religious hermits, as it were, those problems would disappear. But that isn't the life that God calls us to. And it certainly isn't what he expects of us. Jesus says in the Gospels, he expects us to be salt and light in the communities that we live in and seek to engage with. And you know what that means? That means we will inherit certain problems from the community around us. And it also means that as we seek to reach out to those communities, they will cause us certain problems. The other thing that each of these churches had in common was that the solution to their problems could be found. In the person of the Lord Jesus. As I've read the book of Revelation, uh, you'll know that uh, the book of Revelation draws on many Old Testament sources, and the key to understanding the strange and mystical nature of the writing very often lies in knowing your Old Testament. The more, the better you know your Old Testament, the better you'll be able to unpack the book of Revelation. But there is, I've come to the decision one book more than any other from the Old Testament that the book of Revelation draws on, and that is the book of Exodus. The time when God led his people through the wilderness, when he both sustained them and spoke to them. It was a time when God taught his people what it really meant to be his children, to both rely on him and To serve him. And you know, it seems to me that the patient endurance that John writes of is not backward looking, it's not navel gazing, it is full of purpose and it is full of perseverance. It is proactive endurance. It is looking beyond our own circumstances, beyond our own problems, beyond our own inability to solve our problems. It is realizing that Jesus holds a solution to our circumstances, to the problems of life that we face. It is realizing that in all our suffering, God has a plan. It is a plan he is utterly faithful to, and it is a plan that he will see to fruition. And you know the amazing thing about that plan is that you and I are a part of it. I'm sure that many people are going to look back on 2020 and probably a large part of 2021 as perhaps the wilderness years, the locust years. You know, I've already read one, uh, one article in a newspaper where it described 2020 as the great pause, the time when nothing happened. And yet the reality is these are the times that God speaks to us. These are the times that God tells us what it means to be his people, his children, when he teaches us. But that can only happen when we look beyond our own circumstances, beyond our own Patmos, and we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of all that we cling to, our Alpha and Omega. We're going to sing in just a minute, and we're going to sing these words that I think reflect something of what John would have felt on Patmos. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Saviour and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God bless you all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even though it was written 2,000 years ago uh, to people that had very different lives from our own, what you had to say then is still real and relevant and useful for teaching and instruction in 21st century Dorchester. We thank you that you are the God who is unchanging. We thank you that in the midst of turmoil and strife and confusion and changing times, that we can trust in you, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has plans and purposes for each and every one of us. We pray that as we face times of darkness and uncertainty, you would help us to remember every step of the way to look full in your wonderful face. Help us in the midst of darkness to look to your light and in doing so to become beacons of light in our dark communities. Comfort us, give us strength. Help us to remember in the dark and uncertain times to hope in your unfailing love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.